This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to today's mini masterclass with me, James Roy from Westwards. Today, my guest is Fiona Murphy from the Blue Mountains, and I'll give you uh, Fiona's bio in just a sec, but I'd better say hello first. Hi, Fiona. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me. On a beautiful early spring day in Springwood. Yeah, absolutely. Very good time of the year. It's a lovely time of year. Uh, now, you've recently done some work with us at Campbelltown. You, you ran a fiction masterclass for us, so thank you for doing that. Um, your bio, uh, I'll, I'll read what you've supplied to us, and then we'll have a little chat about that before we get onto the topic that we're going to be talking about today. It says, Fiona Murphy is an award-winning deaf poet and author. Her work has appeared in The Guardian. This is quite an impressive um, back catalogue here. The Guardian, ABC, The Age, Kill Your Darlings, Overland, The Saturday Paper, Griffith Review, The Big Issue, and many other outlets. Her debut memoir, The Shape of Sound, was released by Text Publishing in March of this year, and it's coming out in the UK and in North America next year. Tell us a little bit about the the memoir, if you if you could, the shape of sound. Yeah, it, it explores my experiences with deafness, which was something that I kept very much a secret for over twenty years. Um, so I was born profoundly deaf in my left ear, and this was at the time where there wasn't really any technology available to kind of fix that, and it was very much like. Oh, She's a nice girl. She seems to be socially well-adjusted. She'll be fine. But I was essentially illiterate for many years. I had so much trouble learning to read and write. So I kind of gained this deep sense of shame around deafness as it being quite a flaw. So I kind of got into the habit of concealing it. But then as I got older and older, I started to recognise how being deaf is a very different way of existing in a hearing world. So it was only after a hand injury that I started to learn Ausland and I thought, oh, wait a second, I'm deaf. <laughs> what is this? Oh. Um, so the, the book is really an exploration of what it means to be deaf what it means to hear, what it means to kind of um, experience sound in a way that is probably in a lot more detail than what people who have two functioning ears ever think about because we process sound in our brains. It's quite incredible what our brains can do. So if you are somebody, a hearing person, you can be in a crowded room lots of conversation around you. It's all buzzing around. And if you look at someone and give that person your attention, your brain will literally work like a super powerful uh, remote control in that it will dim down, dull down all the other voices in the room and amplify that single person's voice above the noise and you will be able to focus your attention solely on them. That's uh, an ability I don't have because of my hearing loss. But all these kind of little tidbits where I'm like, wow, do hearing people even realise what they're able to do just so smoothly and fluently without any physical effort? And then I started to think, oh, wait a minute, no wonder people with hearing loss really um, find things difficult and there's a lot of um, kind of 
perceptions of hearing people that deaf people are lazy and they just should put in a bit more effort. But really, it's much more complex than that. It's interesting you, t- you talk about that. Um, well, there's a, there's a term for what you just described uh, in the music industry, in the producer world, they call it um, ducking, where you actually, and I'll probably do, a, I've done a bit of this in this podcast, when the music comes up at the beginning and then when, when I start speaking, you duck away the, the audio beneath it and that like, you, you deliberately lower the volume. And I had no idea that your, your brain actually, quite, or most people's brains can actually do that. That's, that's pretty trippy, isn't it? Yeah, also, um, most people um, with functional hearing, uh, you can locate sound. So because I've only got one functioning ear, which is slowly becoming deaf, um, I don't know where sounds are. So if I had my back turned and there was a noise behind me, I wouldn't know if it was a metre away or 20 metres away. I wouldn't know if it was on the left or right of me. I would have no concept of where the sound was. So it's um, quite a different experience um, being deaf in the world because you very much rely on your eyes to kind of orientate yourself, literally, physically orientate yourself in the world. Mm -hmm. So that was a really great example I found of a deaf space designer who um, gave the example of what it's like to live in a deaf body. It's not, if you want to experience it, don't plug your ears but rather try walking backwards because that's literally the sort of physical effort and guesswork that you're doing in a deaf body. You're trying to navigate and use all the clues that you have, like you're looking around, looking at the ground, looking up, saying, oh, am I going to reach an obstacle? Am I going to trip over? So you're quite in this heightened sense of alertness, which, again, I think most um, people who haven't had that experience just assume that being deaf is sort of a, oh, you're missing out on things. It's just, it's just quieter. Yeah. yeah, a little bit softer, mm-hmm. a little bit muffled, but really it's it's a it's a very different experience. I recently did a thing about Henry Lawson with some with some musicians, and I didn't realize that Henry Lawson Henry Lawson was very deaf, as profoundly deaf as well. Did you know that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's not well-known or written about, and there's a deaf academic, uh, Jessica White, who has authored a few books as well. She's quite incredible, but she's done a lot of work to sort of um, amplify or bring attention to this sort of real uh, legacy of deaf artists in Australia and creatives because Judith Wright as well is a well-known poet who um, she has the same condition that she had the same condition that I do, otosclerosis. So she progressively um, became deafer and deafer, but uh, these elements of their lives aren't necessarily studied in academia or in general discourse. They're kind of just seen as um, uh, by the by sort of poets as such but this sort of how hearing loss has informed their work is uh less understood yeah i'd love to understand how henry lawson managed to capture cadences of speech and that sort of thing when he was as deaf as he was Uh, i suppose the beethoven is the one that people go to most often isn't he because he's, he's sort of the the poster boy for i suppose considering that he was a a composer and a musician as well that the the deep irony of somebody losing their hearing and and being a composer is pretty pretty strong isn't it 
Yeah, I go into that in my book, actually, because there's um, some really good evidence to show that um, the theory is that his deafness um, enhanced his ability to make music because he, and one of the reasons why his legacy um, is lives on compared to other composers of that time is he took to pen and paper quite readily. He was one of the first to actually notate what he was doing because it was very much um, in music at that stage kind of improv. That's how people sort of gained a sense of a reputation and people were just sort of played music aloud but he was one of the first to actually start notating it and then that um, skill that he was one of the first to acquire meant that he was able to start to arrange bigger and bigger orchestral sort of um, symphonies and there's this real argument that his deafness was um, like a superpower that made him completely different to everyone else and um, that sense of um, harmony that he has in it that sort of almost predictability where it sort of it doesn't feel complete until you've heard the whole symphony and you've got this physical reaction of almost relief when you get to the end of it was very much sort of um, played into his deafness they think that he was always trying to predict what people were saying and filling the gaps so it's um, kind of interesting how that's um, became intertwined with his compositions yeah, I remember when I was very young watching a movie called The Magnificent Rebel. I, I assume you, you've probably seen it if you, you studied Beethoven, but um, there's a scene in there where he, his, his deafness is almost complete and he um, he's composing, and it's, there's obviously quite a bit of um, poetic license in this, but he um, he's sitting under a tree in a thunderstorm writing the Ninth Symphony. And um, we can make all these jokes about him being a poor conductor and all those, but... Um, but he, uh, yeah, sitting under a tree in a thunderstorm. I'm not sure that was wise, but it's it's a it's <laughs> it's a nice um, nice dramatic moment, I suppose. Anyway, look, we're not here to talk about that, but thank you for for sharing that information. I find it fascinating. But we're actually here to talk about something else. I, I, I asked Fiona to let me know what she'd like to discuss today, and she came back with the idea of discussing the process of feedback, um, and uh, so. We're looking at this from the through the the filter of writing fiction, non-fiction, poetry, any kind of any kind of writing, I suppose. So let's kick on by asking the first question: Why should we even think about asking for feedback? If we if we're a confident writer, uh, shouldn't we be feel free to just kind of do our own thing? Why can't good writers self-publish without any feedback from anyone else? Why is that a bad idea? I think um, perhaps if you are a confident writer, that's a fabulous thing, but there's a risk in that in that you your confidence means that you haven't captured everything on the page. So often if you are quite good at kind of visualising the story and you know all the pieces that you want, you might not actually translate that to the page at all. So I think feedback is really just a pause in the process of making sure what you are capturing is being picked up by the reader. And I think um, it takes a degree of confidence to ask for feedback more so than anything else. So you might be confident in your writing, but it takes perhaps even more confidence to put it forward to other people and say, what do you think um, is 
takes a lot of bravery. But, well, I was going to say, that's exactly what I was going to say. You said bravery, I was going to say, but that's a, that's a kind of scary moment, isn't it? Is it scary because you're, predict, you're thinking forward to how am I going to respond or is it scary because you think you're going to have to go back to the page and start from scratch or completely? Uh, I remember one of our most recent fellows from the Westwards Fellows, um, her, her advice from her mentor was burn the thing to the ground and start again, which is some terrifying feedback. How do you cope with that? That is huge feedback. I think when I initially started to get feedback, so in writing classes, I, I was petrified. And I wasn't very good at taking feedback on. I was very defensive, very kind of closed off to the idea of wanting or needing feedback. And it was really only through mentorships where it was kind of one-on-one that I started to gain more skills of knowing how to ask for feedback. I think it's a skill set that isn't often taught well. And I think it takes practice to acquire those skills of asking and receiving and applying feedback. I think it's quite a process um, to go through from start to finish. And I think in the actual asking, really, that's when you have the power as the writer in the asking of, in this piece of work, is there an internal logic to it? Is there any issues with the tenses or pace? That is what I want to know about. And then really it's up to the person hopefully to stick to the brief so that they're quite specific in their feedback because burn the whole thing to the ground. What what parts? All of it? Well, like, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've oversimplified that, but yes, yeah. But you can see how um, we do get oversimplified pieces of feedback at times. And even if it's positive, like it's beautiful, I love it. That's, so, that's not really helpful either. It's like, what do you love about it? What are the strengths of the piece? What can I take into my next piece of work knowing that I did it well in that piece of work? So I think um, broad generalizations, be the positive or negative, is quite null and void. It just, it's not actually feedback. It's just sort of observations. Whereas if we start to get used to the idea of asking and receiving feedback, we can really kind of drill down into what we already suspect in the back of our minds, in our guts, that uh, maybe we're kind of budging it a little bit here and there, or maybe the logic of the detective doing this and that doesn't really stack up. And they're the moments where we don't want feedback because we sort of already know that it's not going to be great, but that's really when you should be asking for it. I mean, I, look, I, yeah, I'll, I'll confess that in my own career, um, on not one occasion have I gone, oh, that can go through and that nobody will pick that up. It, it always gets picked up. So I, I think if you've got that suspicion, prepare yourself for the worst because you've got the right kind of person giving you the feedback, they will find it. Um, so you talk about the skill set. So let's let's talk about what that is. What, what, are, what it sounds like you're saying is that... Um, you go to the person that you've you're asking for feedback, and as you say, you give them a brief. I really need you to look at this aspect of of the of the work, um, the structure, for, perhaps. And and of course, as as a writer, when you're editing your own work, you, the advice I often give is you're better off mate, not trying to cover everything off in one pass. This time you go through and look at structure. This time you go through and look at character. This time you go through and look look for your the right spelling of different words and your your tense and all those sorts of things. But what happens if you have handed something over to someone for feedback and it's your baby? This is something that you care very deeply about, something you've invested massive amounts of time and energy into. 
What if they come back and say, look, I know you want me to look at this, that, and the other thing, but I've got a big issue with this character being the main protagonist or whatever. What do you do with that information? I think we need to take a step back from that and go initially, who are you asking for feedback? What is the sort of sample that you want? If you're relying on just one person to give feedback, that's a heck of a lot of responsibility for one person to capture it all and give it all. Whereas it might be a better model to say if you have three readers or such that you trust. And trust is not necessarily if you gave it to your mum and they're just like, it's beautiful, it's amazing. Mum's like it's the best feedback. And although I will counter that by saying um, often young people ask for the wrong kind of feedback. I remember one of my daughters, I won't say which one, but it wasn't the youngest one. Um, when she was, uh, she, she's, she's quite a very good writer in her own right, but she'd, she'd come to me and, and say, can you read this thing for me? And I'd say, okay, it's really good. Have you thought about it? She'd go, no, I don't want your advice. I just want you to tell me what you think of it. Uh, which, you know, so it's not just on the parents to give feedback. Sometimes they're asked for the wrong kind of feedback as well, I think. But, yeah, you're right. Asking your mum for feedback is not usually going to end up with anything. And that's new. just like a standing. I mean, it could be your best friend who just is like, does a courtesy glance of it and it's like, it's amazing, you're the best, I love it. But they yeah. might not actually be a reader. They, that might be the only thing that they have read recently. So they might not be that engaged reader. So it doesn't necessarily have to be an editor you're asking. It doesn't have to be a professional, but somebody who might be engaged with the idea of reading something. And honestly, having um, an engaged reader is such a blessing, but a curse because I'll pick up all those mistakes that you kind of want to fudge and hide. But getting used to the idea that um, in terms of the process, of starting to identify two or three people in your life who you think are interested readers or engaged people engaged with words. And then what you might do is test them before giving them the work of just running past the idea of, um, say, describing the story you're working on before giving it to them, of like, I'm working on a story about a detective who is a fox who lives in Sweden and he is trying to solve the crime of the missing ducks. And getting that response from the person, kind of broad strokes, are they interested? Are they sort of asking questions? Are they going, what happens next? Why are the ducks missing? Do they fly away? Is it migration season? What's going on? Is it a murder mystery? And then you can start to gauge, are they actually going to be invested in something? Because it is quite an ask to um, request feedback. They're investing their time and energy. And um, hopefully in the best instances, that's sort of a reciprocal relationship where you're both kind of giving feedback to each other's works um, if you're both writers. But that can always be a nice little test of just kind of running the idea past them of what do you think of this idea or what would you do next? And then you can gauge, yeah, this is a person I want to send it to. Do you ever um, do you ever choose the person for that feedback based on what you know of them? So, for example, my wife is she's one of those annoying people who you know who done it movie. She's worked out in the first fifteen minutes who it was, and she's like, "That's that. I can't watch anymore." So, um, would she be a good person to send to? For example, if you're working on something like that and saying, "Can you find the? You know, at what point did you work out?" where the twist was or, or, or whatever it might be? Or, or is she too skilled at that, do you think? That's a 
great question. And it could go one of two ways, really. You wouldn't know until you gave her um, that kind of framed it up that way and found out the response. But that kind of idea of um, knowing the twist, I know when I'm sort of editing, because I've gotten so good at asking for feedback, I know how to do that to myself now and provide a clearer sense of feedback to my own work. So this might be skipping ahead a little bit in the conversation, but what I would often do to kind of facilitate that own sort of fresh feedback to my own work is that I'll set it aside for a few weeks to try and forget about it as much as possible, print it out in a different font and then go back through it and then try as best I can to read it through in one sweep. So whether it's a short story or a longer piece of work, I will read through it and then I'll annotate where I get bored and lose attention Mm. because I think that for me personally is a a powerful way of getting accurate real-time feedback on my work. When am I sort of going, ah, I want to make a cup of tea or I'll watch something on Netflix instead. Like when am I starting to drift away from the work? One one trick that I've often used, and I'd I'd be really keen to hear your thoughts on this, one of my books, I had my friend Shannon come up and, and he, he actually it was his suggestion and he sat in my study with me and read my entire novel to me. And while he was reading it to me, I just had the, I had the manuscript on my lap and I didn't ask him to stop. I just made notes as he spoke, as I listened to it. Um, is that something you've ever tried, hearing, hearing someone read your work to you and, and hearing it through a reader's ears instead of just through a reader's eyes? No, but that that's now that you mention it, that's something that I know of a particular writing group that that's what they tend to do quite a bit is that they submit the work and then somebody um, has a go of reading it. But I can imagine it would have a tremendous shift and maybe that's when you start to recognise, wait a second, there are gaps in the story, that sort of thing that you visualise so perfectly in your head and when you are reading it, you can see it and Mm -hmm. you kind of think that it's there on the page. But when you hear somebody else read it, I think those um, larger gaps will start to appear. I um, incorporate a lot of technical aspects into my work, so kind of drawing on science and history and sort of a lot of stats and things, which probably sounds very boring, but what I try and do is then heighten it in a way that is interesting and readable. And the only real way I can test if I've succeeded at explaining a concept, particularly a scientific concept, is to give it to a reader who isn't versed in that information at all because then I, they can tell me, that made no sense or what what the heck is this? And then they can start to pick out the jargon that I might have accidentally left in or where I need to add in a few more lines to kind of tie it all together in a way that's readable and makes sense. So I think it it is quite powerful if you are working on a, a really specific story, even an own voices story, of giving it to someone outside that experience because then they can ask what seems to be really um questions that you might not have even considered before. So with my memoir, because it's so much about uh, deafness, my editor um, is hearing and it was really her going, what do you mean by this? Like, I don't understand what you're talking about or does this ever happen to you? Or what actually is lip reading? What is this? What is that? And it was all those sort of questions that really kind of prompted me to expand certain areas and pull back in other areas. So I think it's really helpful to go to um, 
for lack of a better phrase, an uninformed reader because they will give you that really key information. Because if you share that with a a deaf reader to give you feedback, they may well have gone, it's a perfect representation of my experience as well, but that's not terribly helpful, is it? And that's the thing. Um, sometimes it's good to get that feedback as well. So then you're like, oh, okay, I'm on the right track. So you you kind of have to know what you're seeking when you're asking for feedback because sometimes we do want validation to continue and that's completely okay in feedback. Sometimes we just want somebody to say, yeah, you're you're heading in the right direction. This is, I'm, I'm on the page with you. I'm really enjoying this. I'm so excited to see where it ends up. But the only way that we're going to get that sort of feedback is if we ask for that sort of feedback. So if you are handing it to your best friend and it's a it's an idea that you're sort of slowly piecing together, it's okay to say to them, "I can you just tell me if you're enjoying it and I only want to hear good feedback. And then you give it to them and then if they are your best friend, they'll give you that good feedback. Um but just know, knowing to yourself that at some stage later on with that piece, you may have to road test it in a different way and ask for different feedback. Um, when you sent the letter, the list of you know, topics that we could talk about, you actually said only one of the things that you suggested was when to seek it out and when you shouldn't. When shouldn't you seek feedback? When it feels terrifying. I think at some points when we can't even speak in those broad strokes to people of I'm writing a detective story about a fox because the idea just feels too sort of um, not insubstantial, but, you know, when you have an idea and it just doesn't feel like it has a shape to it yet, that it's, it's not a thing, it's a feeling more than anything else. In those instances, if you're to share that with your best mate over a coffee and they go, oh, and the fox lives on a submarine and the submarine's doing this and that and you can see your idea going away from you and it's not yours anymore, it's like taken legs and has drifted off and you're never going to get that original idea back because that person's kind of, you know, captured it. In those instances, you kind of already know in yourself it's a little bit too soon because you don't actually have enough there. But then other people kind of get a lot of energy from bouncing ideas off of people. I think one of the key things with being a writer is the longer you do it, the more you kind of figure out your own sort of psychology around it, what what motivates you, what drives you forward, um, where your weaknesses are and where you're a little bit nervous about doing things, all all this is really useful information to kind of um, know how to approach a project and an idea. Look, I don't want to be that guy with your fox story, but I'm just thinking maybe when he's in his submarine, he he could find the Loch Ness Monster. What about that? That's a good idea, isn't it? And then it becomes your idea. And those conversations, it's like, oh, he could find the lock just Yeah, but it's, a, but it's a good idea though, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's a good idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. Um, oh, by the way, are you actually working on a book about a fox who's a Swedish detective? No, but I am working on a, a crime novel. Right. And what I'm doing in terms of feedback is I've sent small pieces to a writing group that I'm a part of. And the feedback that I've asked is more specifically, is there enough logic here in the story? 
to kind of justify the, why this character is doing something unethical. So in that sort of instance of feedback, I'm just asking, is there enough logic? And the feedback so far is like, yeah, but, and then in the but, da, 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 that's when I can um, gather a bit of information and start to look at the work anew through their lens. Because the thing with feedback is that it's just a hint. It's not the answer. It's just pointing in the direction where there might be things that you could either tweak or change or tighten up. And you don't have to accept all the feedback at all. And by no means should you feel like the other person has to give you the answer. More often than not, when I do get feedback that is um, really constructive, often I have to sit there for a long time to figure out how to actually apply it in a way that I feel comfortable and confident with. So it could be constructive in a way of like there's a lot of missing information here or you spend too long on this idea or why are you incorporating all this stuff about um, submarines? That was actually a a little offshoot that I did have in my memoir. I was really obsessed with um, the sort of acoustics of submarines because uh, they had like the sound engineer from Pink Floyd doing a lot of work on submarines and that's kind of led to a lot of um, offshoots of sound design and it was all this like amazing stuff that I really wanted to wedge into my memoir. There's also all our, all our echolocation technology, which is very clever as well. It's so amazing. And I just thought, obviously, this is all about sound. It clearly belongs in the book. And I kept getting feedback of people saying, oh, that seems like a bit of a tangent. And I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) But eventually I did take it out because I kind of grappled with it enough and it was one of those instances of killing my darlings. But it took me a long time to come around to realising, like, yeah, that. That's a story that I want to tell, but not in this book. It kind of deserves its own space. So, um, and that, yeah, I guess that's that sort of leads to the next little bit of discussion, which is how you use that feedback, how often you might get that feedback and go, look, that's that's good feedback for a completely different project. Is that something that you've you've had happen in your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I find that. I am never short of ideas, but I'm short of word count. (laughs) So I try and wedge as many ideas into one project as I can, whether it's a feature article or a personal essay or um, a book length project. And then it becomes a thing of ideas rather than an actual story. Um, So that's when I know now because that's kind of a habit that I have as a writer that then I start to ask those kind of questions of like, and it might seem like a completely different question, but I tend to ask, is this logical or can you follow this? And they're quite broad questions, but that's, I'm not, um, I'm waiting to hear back from people about their responses and then if I've given it to four or five people and four out of five people say, yeah, that thing about the submarine was a bit, I don't know where you were going with that. And that's when I go, okay, the vast majority of people aren't following my internal logic here. I either need to tighten it or cut it out. And I guess it's it's best to get that before the thing comes out rather than reading all that confused feedback on Goodreads later, isn't it? 
Absolutely. And it's also, I think, better to get feedback on a piece of unpolished work. And the reason for that, not kind of work that um, is in that kind of wafty stage of a new idea where it's all a bit fragile and you're a little bit shy and uncertain about where it goes. I think possibly that might be a bit too soon to get feedback. But a piece of work where you sat with it for a while but you know it's not polished completely, I think that's a good time to get feedback because the more you polish a gem, the more you get the impression that, that it's immovable and complete and whole and any sort of feedback you get on it would feel like you're smashing the gem into a thousand pieces and it feels like you're destroying it but if you get it a little bit before that 100% completion point more at that sort of 70% point 70% you've got ownership over that idea it's not like a 10% where it's not really your idea yet because you haven't worked through it but if it's around that 70% point you kind of have worked through it. You know the bones of it. You know what it is without having done the finessing of it. Yeah, so if you use a use a uh, an artistic metaphor, you can still reposition the limbs slightly and change the lighting slightly to get that look you're going for rather than, you know. Yeah, um, if the clay is wet, you can still kind of shift it around. The nice when the clay is still wet, yeah. So I've got one more question for you. Uh how do you cope with the unexpected or hurtful feedback? Because we've all had, we've all had that feedback where someone goes, can I, if I can give a very quick example, because it's still fresh. I made the mistake of going back to Goodreads the other day and looking at some of the reviews. You, ne- you never do that, by the way, for, for anyone listening. Um, but my book about the Rwandan genocide um, told through the eyes of a child, 1,000 Hills, and somebody had written in the feedback there, um, I hated this book. I don't know why I even bothered picking it up. And in the end, there was only one full day of genocide in the whole thing. That one was pretty easy to dismiss. I thought you kind of missed the point. But when somebody is giving you feedback that just they just haven't got it or it's just hurtful, what, what do you do with that? That is horrific feedback, by the way. That I know. Like, it's, I, 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 yeah, I, I thought this says more about you than about me, actually. You were disappointed there's only one day of it, yeah. Well, what you're saying there, um, in those instances, I have had the courtesy glance at Goodreads and also recommend that nobody ever do that. (laughs) And the reason for that is I think a one star is it's quite clear that the book isn't for them because it's decisive, it's definitive. You can almost go, yeah, well, not for them. And they their words may echo in your head for a little while, but you sort of know that, no, nah, they missed it. The, it's, they were reading something else entirely that wasn't on the page. Unless all the reviews are overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly half a star or one star, in that case you can probably assume the book's not very good, can't you? Well, I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> Give it to your best friend instead. Yeah, but I think it's those middling reviews that are very confusing where it was all like, yeah, it was good, but, and it's not really articulating what specifically they didn't like about it. And that often does happen in book reviews in kind of print media as well, where it's more of a synopsis of what's happened rather than kind of getting into the nitty gritty of what didn't work, whether it's the narrative propulsion and tension, tension, the turning points and sort of that active readership of a book of going fundamentally the mechanics around this section just weren't working and they didn't click into place or the structure as a whole could have benefited from this, this and this. 
And I mean, most of the time, you're not going to get that specific feedback um, unless you've got a very engaged reader or editor. But you will get the sort of broad sweeping hurtful feedback. And I reckon you should just feel the hurt, like acknowledge that it hurts and then like kind of stick with it for a little while, whether it's a few minutes or a few days. But if you try and push that away and pretend that it didn't happen, it has the potential to fester and kind of give you a sense of nervousness when you come to the page the next time. Whereas if you actually grapple with those feelings when you get that feedback and go, geez, that, that was a blow and actually feel the blow, you're more of a chance of kind of overcoming it and going, all right, so I'm not great at characterization yet. But isn't this such a gift to know when I go back to the page, how am I going to make these characters three-dimensional? What sort of habits and tics and behaviours am I going to make sure that these characters are a little bit more well-rounded? So I think it does put you in a position of power when you've processed the hurt and pain. But my goodness, it's tough doing it. It's not easy. It takes courage. Um, But I think... There's also that... that the thing is, it's not. Well, I guess it's feedback, but it's a bit late for anything to be done about it. But when you get a review, and the review is broadly glowing, but then there's one line at the end saying, "But you know, the the little change at the end of the third act didn't quite work for me," and that's the bit you focus on, isn't it? Like you've got, you've got this amazing review, but then you're going, "Oh, come on, you missed that bit." That that's actually the best, right? That, because those reviews. That's what the reviewer has to do to kind of uh, validate the rest of the good stuff. If it was all good, the reader um, of the newspaper is going to look at it and go, are they mates or something? Like, this is all positive. I don't know if I can trust it. So I think every review does need to have a little glimmer of kind of um, just a bit of edge to it, a bit of negativity to actually counterbalance all the positive stuff. It makes it a much better review. And also it means that they've actually read and thought about your work. So I think it is a I little mean, it makes bit of it feel a lot better now, Fiona. <laughs> about that I've worked with a couple of um, book editor reviewer people and they're always like, no, 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 you need that 1% in there right. to actually make it hold together. And, um, no, nah, I think it, it is a gift. I like what you said about it shows I've read the whole thing. I remember a kid a high school girl at a school session, I held up one of my books and she said, oh, I read that one. I said, oh, did you? What did you think? She said, oh, I didn't like it. I said, oh, that's, that's fine. Um, how much of it did you read? And she said, oh, I read the first page. I said, you got to give me a bit more on that. There's not even a full page of text. It's like a third of a, <laughs> a third of page of text at the bottom and you gave up. I had to give me a little bit of time to kind of prove myself, but maybe that's just one of the pitfalls of writing for younger people is you got to get in there soon. Oh, my goodness. I, I don't know. I've had people read the blurb of my book and go, ah, nah. <laughs> I know exactly what she's talking about. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Do you? Okay, good. Look, Fiona, thank you so much for chatting with us. Was there anything you wanted to add about um, feedback? Do you think we've covered it? We've covered it pretty well, haven't we? Yeah, I and I think it's always, I don't want to give the impression that I'm out there asking everyone to critique me because, oh, my goodness, I, I'm certainly very shy about getting feedback, but I think the more that I've done it year on year, 
um, the more I can prepare myself for it because it does take a bit of getting your courage up, sending it out there and letting it sit and then what to actually do with it when you get it back. And sometimes you don't know what to do with it. Um, and the last thing you want is to have that reputation for being, you know, if you see your your coffee invitations being increasingly turned down by people because they think they're going to be given a manuscript to look at, um, that might be time to wind it back a bit perhaps. A hundred percent. Don't don't um, always go to the um, select handful of people and expect that they'll be excited to read your stuff every time. If somebody walks in to have coffee with you, see that you've got a briefcase by your side and they turn around and just walk straight out again. That's probably not a good sign. <laughs> Here is my attache case of <laughs> writing. <laughs> Place it down and walk away. Look, thank you so much for chatting with us. And um, I've been speaking today with Fiona Murphy, who whose debut memoir, The Shape of Sound, is available now through text publishing. And um, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me.